Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. I'm really excited about today's episode because a lot of times when we talk about water or when we talk about energy, we talk about them sort of in a silo. You know, even on this show, we will have water experts or we will have energy experts come on and we'll talk about various issues related to infrastructure or public policy. But today, we're going to be talking about the water energy nexus. And this is a particularly poignant issue in the state of California. And so we have two subject matter experts on the show with us today or who are going to help us understand some of the peculiar peculiarities um, of what happens with water in Southern California that impacts the state's water energy nexus. In fact, about 12% of the state's total energy consumption is related to moving, treating, and heating and cooling water. And so a, a lot of this revolves around the issues in Southern California. So today we have Dr. Eric Porce, who has a PhD in civil and environmental engineering. He conducts research on, on energy and water management in Los Angeles. And we have Nicholas Chow, who has a, a master's of science from UCLA in civil and environmental engineering. And he's with the UCLA Luskin Center for Innovation. And we're going to be talking to them today about some of the things that are going on or could be going on in Southern California to address this water energy network. But we're going to start really at the beginning so that no matter where you're at, listeners, and your understanding of this issue, we're going to take you from wherever you're at to a, a much deeper understanding by the end of this episode. So, Dr. Porce, I'd like to start with you. Welcome to Go Green Radio. Um, I would love to start by having you explain to our listeners what we mean by the water energy nexus, particularly as it pertains to the state of California. Sure. Well, very nice to be here. Thanks, Jill. Uh, The water energy nexus is sort of a broad term that we use to describe the relationships between how we in society use water and energy resources. So we use water for lots of different end uses um, and needs, anywhere from in our homes and our businesses to recreation to watering uh, crops for agriculture. And likewise, we use energy for a lot of um, uh, end uses as well. So heating our, our buildings, powering our factories, um, and also transportation uh, uh, for, for vehicles and moving around. So the water energy nexus is a term that describes how when we use either water or energy, it's interrelated. Um, and there, you can sort of think about it in two ways. You can think about it as the water we use for making and uh, creating energy. So we, we have hydropower plants that um, provide electricity, and we use water to cool uh, coal and thermal plants. Um, and then on the flip side, you can also think about it as the energy we use for water. So it, it, we, we um, consume energy when we're moving water into cities or moving water to farms. Uh, we consume it when we're pumping groundwater or treating water and wastewater to make sure we're providing safe and reliable water. Uh, and so the two of these, these ways of thinking together sort of constitute how researchers think about the water energy nexus. Mm-hmm. It's, been a, it's been sort of a topic of 
conversation and research. There's been a lot of work done in California going back for about almost um, two decades, really. There was a series of studies in California in the late 90s and early 2000s that tried to characterize the amount of energy we're, we're using for uh, water management in the state. And um, sort of fast forward 20 years now, it's been sort of brought into the more of the mainstream as to recognizing that water management is a significant use of energy and we need to address, and we need, need to address that as part of a broader strategy for reducing energy and greenhouse gas use in the state. Mm-hmm. And Nicholas, I want to go to you. I'm so glad to have you on the show, by the way. Welcome. I would love for you to help us understand why it is that Southern California's current water system is so energy intensive. I saw a map online that shows the energy density in different parts of the state for the the water systems. And Southern California just jumps off the map in terms of the number of kilowatt kilowatt hours per acre foot uh, used. And so help us understand why that is so. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, Joe, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, in terms of why Southern California has such a high energy intensity, in short, the answer is that we use a lot of water, and that water needs to come from somewhere. So while some of it is pumped from groundwater basins, quite a lot of it is, comes from imported supplies, and these supplies tend to be really energy intensive. And what I mean by that is that these supplies can use a lot of energy for pumping. Now, Painting in really broad strokes doesn't always give us the full picture on, in terms specifically related to imports because some supplies can be far more energy intensive than others. So in Southern California in particular, we have three main sources of imported water. First, the Colorado River aqueduct coming from the east. Second, the California aqueduct coming from the north. And lastly, the Los Angeles aqueduct coming from eastern Sierra's, the Owens Valley area. And each of these supplies has really different energy intensities because they require different amounts of energy to pump water uphill. So, for example, Los Angeles Aqueduct, which is coming from the Eastern Sierras, is all gravity-fed, which means that they don't use any energy to pump water uphill. In fact, the city of LA captures energy as the water's flowing downhill, sort of providing hydropower, clean energy, as it gets to the city, as it gets to the city of LA. On the other hand, our... Other two imported sources, the California Aqueduct and the Colorado River Aqueduct, we require a lot of energy to pump water uphill and, in particular, over the Tehachapi Mountains for the California Aqueduct, which I believe is one of the largest lifts of about 2,000 feet, one of the largest lifts for water in the world. So it's this energy for pumping that's so, <laughs> it's so much that really pushes that area of the map that you've seen in Southern California into a really different um, color grade or color scheme, a really high energy intensity area. Mm-hmm. I, I remember taking a, a field trip with some students not too long ago, and we were driving from Northern California down Interstate 5 to Southern California, and there comes a point where you can see some of those water pipes going over a mountain. Mm-hmm. And I said, do you know what that is, guys? What, what is that? They had no idea. I said, that, they're pumping water over that mountain to get to L.A., and they were like are you kidding me? I said, you know how heavy water is. Can you imagine how much energy that takes? And and seeing that visual of just how big and long and high those pipes are, 
really helped them understand, goodness sakes, that's, that's got to require a lot of, of energy. So, Eric, back to you. Talk to us about Southern California's current water infrastructure and how that impacts the region's dependence on imported water. Well, the region in Southern California, when we, when we uh, usually refer to Southern California, it's sort of the coastal area and then the near inland empire where somewhere around 23 million people live. So it's a giant region. Um, and some parts of it along the coast are actually quite cool. Uh, and then parts inland are much hotter and drier. And as it was growing in the early 20th century, the areas realized fairly early on that access to water was going to be an essential part of its growth um, and would, would sort of make or break how much the region could expand in terms of population. So the first of those um, large-scale projects that Nick had mentioned, the Los Angeles Aqueduct completed um, around 1913 and started delivering water for the city of Los Angeles, um, was, was the initial uh, uh, attempt to bring in imported water to the region. And then followed by the, the California Aqueduct, I'm sorry, the Colorado uh, River Aqueduct and later the California Aqueduct through the mid-20th century, these really became staples. Uh, um, depend, uh, highly, the region was highly dependent on imported water. But at the same time, the region has a lot of local water sources. And so it uses these I- imported water sources to create a, a kind of a reliable base um, through which it can um, provide water throughout the year in combination with local water sources such as groundwater and a little bit of recycled water as well. So the, the region without this imported water would not have been able to grow nearly as much at the time that it did, and um, it was uh, essential for it to be, become the sort of economic powerhouse that it is now throughout the, uh, throughout the U.S. And, and Nicholas, I, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing in, in the area. You're a, the water engineering project manager for the Luskin Center for Innovation at UCLA. We're going to dive into the specifics of that in just a little bit, but I'd like for you to give us an overview of what you're working on to address Southern California's water future. Sure, oh, sure. So at the Luskin Center for Innovation, we really focus on doing policy work for a sustainable future. And water is a really big part of that, both in Southern California and Northern California. I'm a water engineer myself, so I sit in a space where I really try to think about how do I translate the science to the policy and make sure we're making really informed and good decisions. And that leads me to work on a lot of different kinds of projects. We address the future of water in Southern California from a lot of different perspectives, like the human rights of water. I look a lot at the value of resilient water supplies in cases of droughts or earthquakes, things like recycle water or desalination or even water trading and markets. And a lot, a lot of my time is spent looking at what we're going to be talking more about today, which are the trade-offs between water and energy and even greenhouse gases. I think that all of these different aspects of water are going to be really crucial moving forward in making us have a stronger water future. And really that means a future where we have clean water, we have integrated planning for our supplies, and where we don't leave anyone behind, folks can afford water and they won't be facing shut off. Well, and that's so important because what you're talking about is dealing with the science, 
the societal impact, the economic, the, you know, the political will, all of those things are critical ingredients. And for a long time, those of us who've been in this space for a while, we have seen these issues dealt with in silos. And then at some point, the experts in those silos come together and try to hammer out a deal. And oftentimes they don't. And so for me, kind of as a on the outside looking in to know that the Luskin Center for Innovation is looking at all of those you know issues together is pretty heartening because it's such a holistic view of what it will actually take to take theoretical solutions and make them practical solutions. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with Eric and with Nicholas. We're going to be diving into the deep details of what a 21st century sustainable, reliable water system looks like for Southern California and the impact that could have on not just the whole state of California, but some of the other regions that are sharing, for instance, the Colorado River water. So this is going to be great, folks. Don't go away. We've got much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guests today are Dr. Eric Porce and Nicholas Chow. They are both subject matter experts in water management. And we've been talking about the water energy nexus, particularly in the state of California. It's a big deal. We use a lot of energy to move water. And that energy energy comes with a greenhouse gas emission uh footprint. And the state as a whole is looking at all kinds of ways to reduce our energy usage and also to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions um, and to become more efficient in the 21st century, more resilient. And so, you know, looking at and researching the water energy nexus and particularly what's going on in Southern California, where a lot of the water that is used there is pretty energy intensive because of where it it originates and where it has to be moved to. Um, this is a big, big topic. And so our guests today are subject matter experts in this particular field. And I want to go to you, Eric. Um, you're the principal architect for the artist model of urban water resources management in LA County. And before we get into the details a little bit later in the show, I'd like for you to give us a preview of some of the challenges that Southern California faces in the 21st century to sustain the water needs of such a large population? Yeah, the challenges are many. Um, So in Los Angeles County alone, there are over 200 different uh, entities that provide water. Um, There's about 100 of them that are kind of large agencies that we typically think of as the folks who will be sending you a bill for water. And Mm -hmm. those uh, agencies over time have coordinated, built infrastructure to provide um, reliable water supplies, and we have this sort of an expectation in society that they'll be able to do that uh, going into the future to support, you know, life in cities and and our yards and our trees and so forth. Um, But they face a lot of challenges, as you mentioned. Um, So in California, we have a continually growing population, but across the state we've been able to actually kind of – flatline or even reduce a little bit the um, amount of water that we're using in cities. Um, And having this continue into the future means we need to um, make uh, further progress on water conservation and efficiency measures. And uh, um, agencies throughout the state are sort of engaged on this challenge, um, which is an ongoing um, challenge challenge that relates to funding and it relates to uh, the infrastructure that we already have in place. Um, so in the future, we're going to need to uh, continue to invest in water infrastructure um, to, to, to provide these kind of reliable supplies. We also, as a society, we, have changed, we need to um, recognize that we're going to have changing expectations around our water use. Uh, so in the past, in uh, Southern California, sort of a, a, what we call a Mediterranean climate, and so it, it hardly rains throughout much of the state in the summertime. But yet we still want to enjoy our trees and landscapes and so forth in cities. So we have sort of a, a, a recognition that irrigation, uh, we, we um, water our, our lawns and our yards in the, in the summertime, but the, the, what those yards look like is much closer to a place that gets a lot more rain in the summertime than we do in Southern California. So our expectations are a challenge that we have to change for what folks ex- sort of recognize as being the landscapes that are throughout our city. Um, we also have a 
pretty big challenge uh, in the future uh, regarding the quality of water. And so this relates to the quality of water that are in our streams that come from runoff uh, from urban streets. And it also relates to treating water with all of the the sort of uh, contaminants uh, that are in it, and and then we reuse that water to provide uh, to our residents. Um, and and as we sort of increase our conservation, uh, we can. It also provide presents challenges for that for um, maintaining that water quality in streams and and the water supply that we provide to homes. And then a final challenge really is uh, climate variability and climate change going forward. So we, we, we know, um, based on um, scientific evidence and research and modeling, that in the future, the places where California gets water from uh, in, the, in the snowpack of the mountains uh, throughout the West, really, that snowpack will be decreasing and uh, provide increasingly variable um, water supplies. And so agencies have to balance all of these challenges as they're going forward and figuring out how to invest and where to invest in their systems. That is a huge challenge. And, and I think that one of the things that, you know, I, I work a lot with K-12 schools um, with my nonprofit, the, the Go Green Initiative. And, you know, this, this idea that somehow the agencies involved with waste and water and food systems and energy systems, that those agencies will alone be able to educate the, the end users of all these systems um, in order to reset those expectations is probably unreasonable and that somehow environmental education has got to step up to the plate and help educate citizens from a young age on up to reset some of those expectations around water and energy and and our food systems and the way that they will change, um, you know, in the coming years of climate change. So um, it's a challenge, not just for the agencies, it's, it's for all of us. And, uh, and thank you for that that really great overview. Now, Nicholas, to you, um, you know, Eric talked a little bit about, about water conservation. But I, from your perspective, do you think water conservation is going to be a significant component in a more sustainable water future, particularly for Southern California? Yeah, I think the answer to that is a resounding yes. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned that I want to pick up on is the education you're doing with younger kids and students. I think conservation, educating those folks about conservation is really crucial for households. We know from the research that kids have a lot of sway on how their parents behave. And I think that for the coming generations, if they're growing up with this knowledge, that understanding of conservation is going to be crucial and it's going to be built in. Now, already in Southern California, I think we're doing a lot of conservation and it's already a key part of our our water planning and our water management. And now a lot of households, but I think that in the future it will only become a larger part. And I say that for a couple of reasons. I think that our per capita water consumption is still quite high. Even after the drought, we saw a great reduction in per capita water consumption, that is water consumption per person. We saw a great reduction in that during the drought. And after the drought was declared over, we saw a rebound where folks started to use more water again. And there really isn't a problem with that necessarily, but it is true that relative to other cities and other parts of the world, we in Southern California do still use a lot of water, and we can work harder to bring that number down to make our our water systems as a whole more sustainable. There comes a point, however, you have to think about, well, really, what is the maximum we can reduce in our consumption? 
and the water managers are working on that right now. I don't think there's a good answer for that. Um, certainly in developed urban areas, there isn't a good answer for that. But we're trying to think about new strategies and new ways to integrate conservation into our water systems as they develop. I'm sure you've seen or folks, on, folks that are listening have seen the conservation programs that are out there, things like turf replacement or low-flow showers and low-flow toilets. Those are all really integral parts. And as those programs and physical infrastructure like low-flow showers are built into a household, over time, that infrastructure is going to remain. So as we replace toilets and we replace showers, over time, we're going to be using less and less water. And so I think in the future, conservation will be a large part of, a large part of how we live in Southern California. Now, my other projects, I have to admit that um, <laughs> conservation does affect so many other parts of the water sector that I sometimes think that conservation can have adverse impacts that we're not thinking about all the time. For example, when I work a lot with recycled water and recycled water managers, you know, we have large plants that are built for a large volume of water. When drought hits and folks are really underway in practicing conservation, you can imagine there's less water use and therefore less wastewater flows that, goes, that go to our wastewater treatment plants, or reclamation plants, which mm -hmm. means less recycled water to recapture. So there's mm -hmm. sort of a, a delicate interplay there where we are using less water, which is good, which means that we also produce less waste to be reclaimed so there's less water for recycling. But at the same time, you don't, you don't go to the bathroom less, you don't cook less, you don't wash your hands less, which means that the water that's going in our waste stream does have a higher concentration relative to what it is right now. And so these large wastewater reclamation facilities that we built a long time ago were built for really large flows. They maybe now see smaller and smaller flows, but they're also seeing higher concentrations of things to manage. So they're having to adapt their own operations within the existing infrastructure, just making them be more flexible. And that's not always easy. That's fascinating. And actually, I hadn't really thought of that before. I mean, I've, I've thought about the economic impact that water conservation has when it comes to, you know, lower rates. And, and every time mm -hmm. we see water conservation, we see water agencies say, oh, hang on, we still need a certain baseline of, of you know, revenue in order to operate right. our plants. So we got to kick up the rates and, and consumers get mad every time. But I never thought about the impact that it has on wastewater treatment plants in terms of the concentrations of the types of things that are coming into those wastewater treatment plants as a result of water conservation. That's fascinating. Eric, uh, what role do you think that um, stormwater capture should or will play in Southern California's water future? Yeah, so... Um when we were talking about conservation, we we refer to that as kind of managing demand, and so how much water we're using. And the other half of that equation is uh, managing supply. Um, and so stormwater capture uh, is one potential source of supply for areas everywhere. And in Southern California, the agencies in Los Angeles and Orange Counties have been capturing stormwater for decades, um, going back to even to the 1930s. And there's um, uh, the biographer for the, uh, the sort of the iconic engineer of Los Angeles, William Mulholland. Uh, she, uh, uh, Margaret Davis, uh, wrote that 
in the that William Mulholland's original idea for using those imported water sources to was to recharge groundwater, which is essentially what we use stormwater for in Southern California. We capture uh, stormwater from runoff that happens in uh, primarily in the winter time, as I mentioned, uh, running off of the mountains into the basin, and we try to get as much of that into the groundwater basins as possible. So at the at the as I mentioned, it's a, groundwater is a significant supply, uh, somewhere near 40% of uh, water uh, use in Los Angeles uh, comes from groundwater. And that groundwater these days is primarily recharged through stormwater capture. And so we have a network of, of, of uh, basins that, that we route all, as much runoff as we can into the basins to then infiltrate over time. And right. it fills up groundwater basins that then serve as a source of supply later. So it has been a crucial part of the water of, of water management in uh, Southern California for a long time. And agencies are looking to in, increasingly invest in that in the future. Um, and, the, you know, and, and that's something that I want to get into um, because I'd like to know more about what that investment looks like. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, um, we're going we're gonna to pick right up where we left off. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. And just just in case you only now turned us on, let me catch you up with today's topic and guests. We're talking about the water energy nexus in the state of California, particularly Southern California, and basically meaning the energy that's involved with our water system, the water that's involved with our energy system, and how those are interrelated. But we're really talking about um, some of the things that could be done in Southern California where the water that is supplied there is very energy intensive. What could be done in the 21st century to make it less energy intensive and perhaps more resilient and sustainable as well? Uh, Dr. Eric Porce is with us. He conducts research on energy and water management in Los Angeles. He's got a PhD in civil and environmental engineering. And we're also joined today by Nicholas Chow with the UCLA Luskin Center for Innovation. He's got a master's uh, from UCLA in civil and environmental engineering. And Eric, before we went to break, uh, we were talking about stormwater capture and some of the infrastructure investments that are going to be need that, that will need to be made in Southern California. And I wanted to give you more time to finish that thought. Right. Well, in the past, I sort of mentioned those larger uh, stormwater capture basins. Um, mm-hmm. fo- folks in Southern California might recognize uh, seeing some of those, but we're increasingly looking to make the make them smaller and put them all throughout the city. And these come in the form of green streets or, or sort of swales you'll see in the middle of the road. And the idea is we don't have a lot of land left for those big capture basins. So let's try to distribute them throughout the city and each one of them will capture less water but together if we do enough of it it can have sort of a win-win for capturing water and then reducing the runoff that goes to our streams and our rivers and our oceans got it got it and nicholas i know that you know you were talking about recycled water a moment ago and and how when we conserve a lot of water it can impact uh, the amount of recycled water, or the quality of recycled water. Talk to us more about how significant recycled water is expected to be in Southern California's water supply in the 21st century. Well, I think that much like stormwater and other non-traditional water sources, recycled water is going to be really important in the coming future in Southern California. In Southern California, we don't see too much rainfall, so we can't always rely on that. And we, there's a recognition that our water from our imported sources can sometimes be vulnerable or not always there for us. So having recycled water, that is water that comes from our waste streams that we then reclaim and treat to a very high level, having that water locally is a tremendously valuable resource uh, for keeping the city going for uh, any number of uses. And I think that in the future, because there are so many strategies for using recycled water, I think that it's going to make our water system more flexible, and it'll really support a lot of our future development in the water sector. And I say that I say that it's going to be relatively easy because I think that recycled water has many different strategies. Most people think about recycled water as one unified kind of water. And really, when we think about recycled water, there are three or four different levels. You can think of the least treated level as something that we can use for agricultural irrigation. You can think of a level higher, something we might use for irrigation in areas where people have a lot of human contact, so things like parks and medians, golf courses. And then you can think of the high, highest level of uh, recycled or reclaimed water, is advanced treated water, and that water is close to portable quality. And 
One of the concepts that's really prevalent right now in Southern California is the concept of fit for purpose or fit for use. You only treat water up to the level that you need it. So when you're recycling water, you don't need to recycle to the highest level if you only want to use it for golf course irrigation. And I think right now in Southern California, a lot of water managers are thinking about this and already using a lot of our wastewater for reclaimed water and reuse, reuse recycled water in different ways. Now, one thing that is part of a bigger conversation that's happening more recently is talking about using that recycled water again for portable uses. Mm-hmm. I mentioned we reclaim water and we can treat it to a very high quality with advanced treatment. That brings it to portable or near portable quality. And right now we have great examples in Orange County where they're treating water to this very high level, putting it back into the ground, doing groundwater recharge, just as Eric mentioned, and then we're re-extracting that in other places, treating it again to use for drinking water. And so looking at the future of Southern California, cities like in particular, with the city of LA made an announcement this year, that they're going to reuse all of their wastewater from their largest treatment facility, Hyperion. And so we're really excited about that. It's a tremendous step in the right direction. But we're looking at taking all of that water and potentially using it for any number of uses. There's so much water there that that traditionally or in in the past has been as discharged to the ocean in some parts. But now we're looking at reusing all that water. And so I think if we're able to achieve that goal, the future of the city of L.A. and maybe many other cities to follow suit will be inseparable from recycled water, in my opinion. That's, I mean, that's pretty exciting. And I realize there will be, you know, not just economic and, and technological challenges to overcome, but also, you know, public perception as well. But um, Orange County really is sort of the poster child right now for a lot of people who are trying to dispel the, the ick factor that a lot of people assume when they talk about you know, using recycled water as potable water. Eric, I want to go mm-hmm. to you, and I want you to talk to us about Southern California's groundwater supply and what needs to be done to make it a more significant percentage of the region's total water consumption. Sure. Groundwater is a critical source of supply for cities throughout the globe. Um, it's often a preferential source of supply, and it was in Southern California uh, at, the, at the outset of um, the growth of the, of the urban region. Um, groundwater is preferential because it's, it goes through some natural filtration processes, and it's, to, it's close by, and it's local, and uh, just requires pumping. And there's even parts of Los Angeles that uh, had what's called artesian wells, where you put a mm-hmm. pipe in the ground and water spouts out <laughs> originally. Mm-hmm. But over time, we started to use more of that groundwater, so we don't really see those, that sort of, uh, those sort of artesian wells anymore. But, they, but groundwater in Los Angeles County, for instance, provides around 40%. Uh, Orange County as well uh, is tremendously uh, reliant on groundwater basins. And groundwater, provide, groundwater basins are this opportunity for storing water over years and, and over seasons. And so in the, in the sort of Mediterranean climate that we have, we need to store water in the wintertime when it rains for the summertime. And then we also need to store water in the wet years for the dry years. And so regions throughout the uh, Southern California use groundwater basins for this purpose. Um, but not everybody has access to groundwater supplies. And so the, the rights to pumping um, groundwater from any particular basin, they were, they were 
um, those rights were laid out in agreements decades ago, and they're called adjudications. And so Southern California and Los Angeles and Orange Counties um, were some of the first places to kind of hammer out this question of adjudicating groundwater supply within California. Um, and now the rest of the state is looking at doing this on a broader scale, too. And this is important because uh, if everybody's pumping groundwater and the groundwater basins go down, it's kind of this collective problem um, where we need everybody to decrease, but everybody still wants their water. So we all have to kind of organize and get ourselves together to, rec- to, to limit the amount that we're going to pump in any given year so that the amount we pump equals the amount that's going back into it. And so broadening access to those groundwater basins um, uh, in terms of providing rights to folks who may only be uh, using uh, uh, imported water sources or other water sources is a really important um, uh, uh, requirement going forward. And understanding how to increase the recharge uh, in in a manner that still maintains the water quality in those groundwater basins will be pretty key as we uh, look, as we move towards the future of managing water supply in in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicholas, to you, you know, you mentioned this. We we talked about this in the first segment just briefly that you know water storage in the state of California has been basically snowpacks for the most part, <laughs> you know, and those snowpacks are actually, you know, going to be diminishing over the course of time. I'd like for you to talk to us about Southern California's current water storage infrastructure and what it needs to become in the years ahead in order to, you know, meet the need in, in the region. Right. So we know from things that Eric said earlier that we we traditionally have had a lot of storage in snowpack, and we expect that to be going away. But it's becoming increasingly important for us to have storage that's local. Uh, certainly after the earthquakes last week in Southern California, a lot of water managers are thinking, well, what if we have a really big earthquake and we lose the opportunity to import some of our water supplies? And that's a really scary thought. So there's really been a lot of focus on developing more storage locally to make sure that even in those hard times, we can provide enough safe water for the residents locally in Southern California. I think that there are broadly two types of main water infrastructure, storage infrastructure in Southern California, the first being reservoirs and the second being groundwater basins. And I think right now we're using them pretty effectively, but they're not where they need to be in the future. They're not where they will need to be to make our water system resilient in the future. And the good news is that we're moving towards that. For reservoirs, I think we have quite a few, and they're quite full at the moment, which is a good thing, But and it would be lovely to have more. However, it can be difficult to implement new reservoirs because they require a lot of permits, and they may not always be the best for the environment. And I understand why the good reasons you may not want a reservoir. So it doesn't look like, or I don't expect, there are going to be many more reservoirs built in the near future. However, groundwater basins are a really underutilized resource in some areas, and the state has efforts right now to across, across California, not just in Southern California, to have managers more sustainably manage those, have water managers more sustainably pump in and out of those to prevent land subsidence and to make sure that we have enough water for those dry years, for those difficult times. So mm-hmm. I think with the state's efforts, we will be seeing better groundwater management, and these groundwater basins are tremendously large, really quite significant in terms of total storage that we can use. I also want to add that there's a third potential kind of storage, or I would say 
there's innovative storage ideas that are going on, particular things like groundwater banking, where you can put some water in one year and take it out another year, and there's some economic value that's gained from that between water agencies. Mm-hmm. There's, also, there's also the potential for, if we're looking at um, infrastructure that already exists, if we think of recycled or reclaimed water as a drinking water resource or as even a non-portable resource, we can think of all the pipes, all the wastewater pipes that already exist as a form of storage, especially if we can manage all that wastewater as it's flowing down, we can modulate that that wastewater flow before it gets to our plant and use that in some way as storage before we can take that water and reuse it. Interesting. Now, that's something I've never heard before. That's a really that's a really powerful thought. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with Eric and Nicholas. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. Eric, I want to go right to you. Um, You know, we've talked a lot about some of the things that Southern California needs to do in order to have a uh, maybe a more locally based, more resilient and sustainable water um, system. But help us understand the economic feasibility of upgrading Southern California's water infrastructure in order to meet the challenges of the 21st century. 
It'll require further investments, uh, and you know, cities throughout the country are, are sort of facing this. We made a lot of investments to the 20th century in water and wastewater infrastructure, and now we're thinking about how to pay for um, the, the the evolution of that system that needs uh, of those systems that need to occur. Um, so as Part of a team of researchers, we kind of looked at the economic feasibility of um, upgrading uh, uh, Southern California's water to to incorporate more of these local supplies, and we scanned across all the reports and and all the different sources of of data to under to know what folks were paying for water and how much it was costing, and it, you know in some of the of the water that we currently use, the different sources of supply, these local sources, the groundwater, the stormwater capture, and the recycled water are economically competitive. Um, That doesn't mean that we're not going to need to continue to um, uh, make further investments in the the infrastructure, but they are uh, increasingly economically competitive um, as part of the region's sort of portfolio of the places where it gets water from. One of the challenges, though, is that that's uh, what economists term uh, use the term, they call it path dependence, but it means you're going to continue to tend to do what you did before for a whole lot of reasons. You build up expertise in it, and you've already made uh, your investments in it, so you want to continue to use that infrastructure. And as we've just talked about, Southern California has invested in a lot of imported water infrastructure. So kind of changing the, that um, path dependence of that uh, imported water dependency um, it is is kind of a challenge going forward, and we're going to have to pay for future uh, investments in water infrastructure one way or another. But agencies right now are kind of working out how they uh, um, how they balance the 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 reliability of the system that we that we have now versus moving into the future uh, and the the different sorts of strategies that we're going to use um, as we go forward. Mm-hmm. You know, California is certainly not the only place in the United States or in other parts of the world where water can become quite a source of conflict, political conflict, um, you know, neighbor to neighbor conflict. But Sacramento, you know, is typically very partisan. But the only issue I've ever seen um, happen, you know, in Sacramento where people divide not by Democrat or Republican, but by North and South is water. Um, It can get pretty dicey when we start talking about that. Nicholas, I I would like for you to comment on this. If Southern California became less reliant on imported water, how might that impact its upstream neighbors? That's a really interesting question. I think that I want to preface my answer by saying, there isn't a defined response here. I think, from my perspective, what's likely to happen is that Southern California, if we are able to rely less on imported water, what that does for our upstream neighbors is that it gives them more flexibility. It gives entities that are sharing water with California in the Colorado River more flexibility when they might need water. They're seeing harder times, and we in Southern California can find other sources or have local sources of water that we can use instead of water that we might be pulling from the Colorado. Similarly, in Northern California, I think having more water available to folks and different uses can be really useful and, and will be potentially available. I can certainly think of some environmental uses in the Bay Delta area that would appreciate some flexibility in, in terms of how much water is left back in the Bay Delta. And more and more of it 
being available for these, these environmental uses can mean greater benefits for those upstream. Absolutely. You know, I can't help but kind of hone in on this one particular point, and that's the impact that the water energy nexus has on climate change, because a lot of people are really awakening to um, the, the whole host of impacts that climate change will have on our lives, and they're trying to get involved, and they're trying to become part of the, the conversation. And so, Eric, I'm, I'm looking to you for this. How... If we adequately address the water energy nexus in California, how might that help combat climate change? It'll be part of a strategy that the state is currently taking on through legislation to reduce its its use of uh, fossil fuels uh, for energy, and it's it's what we'll call decarbonization of the economy, so relying less on those sources of carbon to provide us the energy and resources that we need. Uh, so we've already taken steps um, bringing utilities into this overall process um, with, with statewide legislation to have utilities undertake reporting of how energy intensive their, their water systems are. And in Southern California, as we've talked about, um, because of that imported water supply from the two main sources, it tends to be a, an energy intensive place to provide water. But the other aspect of this that we haven't uh, tackled as much yet is the what is the energy we use for water management in homes and residences. And this is actually a much larger percentage than the water that's used or the energy that's used for water getting water to the homes. And so this is a, an incredibly difficult problem because you have to um, work across millions of households um, to be able to switch out, say, your natural gas water heater for an electric water heater and then be providing that electricity through a renewable source. Um, so going forward, the um, retrofitting the residences and the buildings and um, the commercial businesses, um, how they uh, you. Uh, um, heat their water in their in, in homes and, and buildings to provide for um, all the end uses in inside. Uh, that's actually the major challenge, in my opinion, as we look to try to to improve on um, energy for water management in California. Well, and that is an issue that again goes back to public education and helping people understand um, their own you know, contribution to climate change. You know, I talk to teens a lot and I work with student interns and they all want to combat climate change, but a lot of them do not even realize their own, you know, where their own contributions to climate change come from. And when they are so personal, like how you heat the water in your home or the kind of food you eat and, and things like that, it becomes very difficult if people don't understand why um, those things contribute to climate change. And so we have a lot of work to do in that regard, but you guys have helped us a lot today. And our listeners are now much more educated on how the water energy nexus is something that we all need to be thinking about, not just on the macro scale, but even in our own homes. Thank you so much for joining us for Go Green Radio today. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you-
you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.